okay, everyone, let's get started. Um, it is my pleasure to welcome Sally to the stage. Sally has a similarly storied product design, development, management career, uh, as did our last speaker. Um, and here she is today to come and talk to us about how quality is actually probably one of the main drivers behind retention. Uh, so Sally is currently the chief innovation officer of Facebook. Uh, Let's see, Facebook photo that box. That would be a great job. <laughs> that would be an amazing. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, please give her attention and please welcome Sally to the stage. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Now, um, I'm not a person prone to rage, but recently I was driven to blind fury by a brand that I used to absolutely adore. Last summer, we put in a new patio. And um, it's fair to say I was very pleased with this patio, but it was a bit sparse. So I turned to my go-to homeware brand, Cox & Cox, and um, I'd be embarrassed to tell you exactly how much money I've spent with them over the years. But, um, you know, they, they have an amazing range. I actually keep their catalogs because they're almost as good as interiors magazines in terms of sort of inspiration. And just take a look at their website. It's absolutely stunning. I mean, this is, this is the material of my patio of dreams. So uh, amongst other things, anyway, I bought this set of zinc planters. And uh, expensive, right? Pretty expensive. But, you know, patio of dreams. And a few months after I planted them out, I noticed that they were rusting. And not just a little bit rusting, like a lot rusting, to the point where they were staining, uh, you know, my precious patio, my patio of dreams. And uh, so... This really wasn't what I was looking for. I was looking for rustic chic, not rusty shit. So, uh, dear Cox and Cox, I wrote in my email to customer services. Ten days later, I got a response. And they, what they said in their response was that basically, uh, you know, summary, 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 this was expected behavior, a.k.a. not a bug or not a feature, a bug. <laughs> Sorry, not that is completely the wrong way around, isn't it? A feature, not a bug. <laughs> so just as a reminder, here's the web page uh, showing those completely unblemished parts on their completely unblemished tiles. And when I went back to it, what I found was that if you opened up this size and info button down here, what you got was this tiny little description talking about rusting. And this struck me as a bit strange because it felt like something that I, I would have noticed when I was buying these pots. So I used the Wayback Machine. Has, has anyone used the Wayback Machine? You can basically use it to wind back a page on the internet to see what it looked like at any particular point in time. And uh, here is that exact page. So uh, dear Cox and Cox, I wrote, uh, attaching screenshots. My phone rang within 30 minutes. But they didn't call me up to fess up, uh, and they didn't call me up to give me back my money. They called up to tell me that they couldn't be sure when they had updated their website. And, uh, you know, by the way, Sally, uh, metal rusts. <laughs> so my adored go-to homeware kind of interiors brand had called me up to mansplain reduction oxidation to me. <laughs> Guess how much money I have spent with Cox & Cox since that call. Yeah, exactly zero. So what's this got to do with you? Room full of CTOs and CPOs thinking every day about how to bring people back to your sites and your apps. Well, a few weeks later, I was sitting out on my patio of disappointment, and my rage had sort of somewhat subsided, and I, I got to thinking about the product manager at Cox & Cox. And 
all the hard work that they and their team would have put into building this amazing website. And then something like that happened. For every customer who complains, Lee Resources have done a study that shows that 26 remain silent. 26. And of those 26 who remain silent, 25 never come back. For every, those complainers, those customers that are, are, are calling up to moan, they're actually your most valuable customers. The, the new customers who realize that they've just kind of met, realize they've made a mistake somewhere partway through the journey and they, they just disappear. The people that call to complain, that are taking the time to do that, they're actually telling you that they think you can do better. <laughs> You've kind of already won them. The number one reason that customers don't come back is because their quality expectations have not been met by some part of your end-to-end -end customer experience. So if we take a typical e-com journey from a product mindset, where we usually start to look at um, quality is about here, where people land on the site. And where we usually stop thinking about it is about here, where they finish converting, we've end the sales journey, any kind of communications attached to that. Whereas on either side of that, there are a whole set of interactions that might be looked after by other parts of the organization traditionally that directly impact what people expect when they land up on your site. And they directly expect the quality assessments that people make about your products. The stuff that's going on on either side has more, if not you know, it has more impact often than what is going on and all the work that you're doing in the middle to convert people and to retain people on their products. And so what has this got to do with you? It's got everything to do with you. If you are thinking about your product, you should be thinking about every single part of the customer journey, every touch point, online, offline, every message that's sent, every communication. You should be worrying about it. You should be worrying about the quality of all of it. I spent my career doing digital product management, and now I'm looking after a team at Photobox who design and develop the physical things that we sell. And when I started this job, I felt like I knew everything that I needed to about digital quality. But as I've been working with physical materials over the last few years, I really started thinking about, like, you know, what is quality? How do we really, how should we really think about it? And it's not bugs, and it's not software because that's usually how we tend to think about quality in the space. We tend to think about the quality of the UX, how, people, how easy the site is to use, and we tend to think about how many bugs we have and kind of how much how many trouble someone's going to have getting through that journey. Working with physical materials and understanding quality in the physical world has completely changed how I feel like we should think about it in the digital world. So here's a simple toolkit that I use to help us at Photobox to constantly think about quality from a customer's perspective. And the first thing in that toolbox is a tape measure to remind you to constantly and explicitly measure quality. At Photobox, we're kind of probably a bit bigger than most of your organization, so we have the luxury of having a head of quality engineering. And his name is Dan Ashby, and when he talks about measuring quality, he talks about the important distinction, I'm sure you will have come across this, between building the right thing and building the thing right. We, we often think about quality additionally from a digital point of view as the outcome of testing. So it's what happens after we've completed, it's the outcome of UAT, performance testing, pen testing, that sort of thing. But if you look at the whole life cycle of a feature, from concept through development and into launch, 
there are a whole ton of opportunities way before you get to coding to ensure the quality of that product by testing it deeply with customers. And once the feature is live, then, of course, making sure that we did, in fact, do that, build the right thing. So at Photobox, we do that in a bunch of ways, from reviewing our customer services feedback to tracking NPS. Um, and we've even integrated Usabilla on the site to collect quality feedback in the middle of the journey. So the tape measure is there to remind you to start measuring quality from the minute you start thinking about a feature, all the way through its design, through launch, and then into its life and usage by customers. But for those of you who already measure quality, and as soon as you try to do it, you realize just how hard it is to do. We have lost any sensible definition of what quality stands for. And in our efforts to measure it quantitatively, we've been reduced to this. <laughs> One of the reasons that it's hard to measure quality is because it's always relative to the individual. Everyone who turns up on your site or in your app arrives with a completely personal set of, um, a completely personal benchmark against which they're going to assess your quality. And that can be based on all sorts of things from who they are to uh, who your competitors are to like, even whether they're having a good or a bad day. And the most challenging thing about measuring quality is that your customers can't always tell you what it is they've got a problem with. It's not always rational. They feel it. Um, so here's the next thing you need in, in your toolkit, and that's a drill. And I'm going to tell you why. Last spring, we were in the final phases of testing two new products. And one of them was this one. It's a baby book, so it's a board book. It's got like rounded corners and a nice smooth finish. And when we were putting this through customer testing, we were getting some quality feedback that we really didn't like. People were saying things like they didn't think it was strong enough or they were worried it was going to break. And we were really surprised by this because we'd used industry standards to develop the book. And we had really tested it. I mean, we had thrown it around. We tried to tear it. I'd left it in a nursery for three months. Um, and I'd even put one through the dishwasher just to see what would happen. Um, and yet this feedback was pretty consistent. And then what we found was that it was only on the newer books, so the ones that were kind of straight out the packaging or that hadn't been handled for a while. And uh, so, so we kind of dug, dug into that a bit more. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes now because I need you to really listen carefully. I've got one of those test books here, um, and I need you to really listen to, to the sound. So, so close your eyes, everyone. Close your eyes just for a moment and have a listen. You heard that, right? That snap in the spine. So it's actually a completely natural sound. What's happening is that um, when the pages are glued together and the cover is adhered, is attached, this bit of the spine actually sticks to the pages. So when they're brand new, you get that snapping sound when the book opens because the cover is separating from the pages. It's a completely natural sound. And this is what people were hearing, and it was making them feel like this product was not good enough for their kids. So we went back to the production line, and we looked at what we could do. And in the end, we landed up with this additional step where an operator would take the book off the line, dip it in talcum powder, and then apply the cover and then put it back on the line. So you didn't get this kind of adhesion between the spine and the book. Um, and that sort of solved the problem. But so, so that's what the drill is there to do, to, to remind you to really drill into what it is your customers are trying to tell you about your product. And that all went fine for a while. But then what we were doing was that we were also doing a second book, and it's this one. Um, 
This book uh, is running on exactly the same production line, right? So the same process with the dipping, etc. And when we first launched that production line for the baby book, it was doing about 40 to 60 books a day. And this product really resonated with our customers. It's, um, it's an everyday photo book. So it's the idea is you make it on the bus. It's got about 24 photos on it. It's really quick and easy to do on your mobile. You load up friends uh, weekend, photos from a weekend with friends or your kid's birthday party, etc. So high volume. And we introduced this book, and the production line went to about between straight away to 100 books a day, very quick to 400, and suddenly this line was making 1,000 books a day with that same dipping step. And the production director was really struggling with this. You know, it was, it was a really manual step and was slowing down and was struggling to cope with volumes. Plus, our commercial team, this book was going well, we wanted to really drive it. So we wanted to do a big promotion of it and push the volume up to about 4,000 a day. So the production one director wanted to stop this step. They came back to us and said, we want to take it out. And we said, well, this is just too important. Like, we're going to go back to the customers and we're going to reprove just exactly how important this dipping step is. And we went back into testing, exactly the same book, same snap in the spine, and the customers didn't say a thing. <laughs> we couldn't believe it. We were like, what's going on? You can imagine we were in this session listening to these customers, pretty much tearing our hair out, trying to understand what was going on here. And... Eventually, you know, we were snapping the spines to try and get some more no noise out of the book. And eventually, one of the designers said, look, can't you hear that sound? And the, the customer said, you know, some of them had heard it, sure, but quite a few of them hadn't heard it. And those that had just didn't care. They just, they just weren't worried about it. And so what was going on here? And the difference was that with this book, our customers had a completely different use case in mind. They weren't intending it to give it to their toddlers. So they weren't looking out for quality indicators around strength. What they cared about was the finish of the book and the quality of the photographs, and all of those were great. They weren't looking out for quality indicators around strength, and so that sound really didn't matter. The smallest thing can make the biggest impact on quality, and your customers will constantly surprise you with their perspective. So really drilling into what your customers are telling, about you, telling you about your product, but also how they're going to use it and how that impacts what's important to them. The next tool in the toolkit is a spirit level. And this is there to remind you to be thinking about the quality bar in the market that you're playing at and what level you want to set yourself at. A bit like table stakes, is everyone familiar with table stakes? Really thinking about like, what it is you need to show up to compete. And this starts with the bar that your customers might already have preset in their minds. I think quite often we think that we can use price as a lever to drop down quality expectations. But I want to caution really strongly against that based on some of our experience. Price does play a role in, in helping to set customer expectations. But if the bar or the level that is already firmly set within a customer's mind you'll really struggle to convince them that having a lower quality product is okay because they're paying less for it. And here's an example uh, of a challenge we had in that space. So we've been selling photo prints in, for about 17 years in 15 countries. And the thing that we did to create a spike on uh, quality of our prints was that we launched an app that gives them away for free. <laughs> so, and 
The app team started investigating what was going on here, and that's really important. It wasn't the machinists in the factory. It wasn't the physical product team. It wasn't customer services. It was the app team who were thinking about this problem. And they started looking at things like, um, you know, were we encouraging more people to load from their phones so we were getting lo lower quality images in? Had we added an extra compression layer, et cetera? But they also set up this wall, which is a quality benchmark test. So they took a set of prints printed by us, and by all of our non-traditional competitors, so our app competitors, many of whom were also giving away their prints for free. And we used this to do a blind test to see where the quality issues were. And what we found was that our customers were completely correct to be complaining uh, about the prints that they weren't paying for and the quality of the prints that weren't as good as the prints from our competitors that they also weren't paying for. Our customers have a really firm and entrenched view of what a photo should be, should be like, and that has got absolutely nothing to do with how much they pay for it. And you need to really look at your competitors as well to understand where they're setting the quality bar in the market. So a really great example that stuck out for me in the, last, in the last couple of years is when Google launched Google Docs, the company that was setting the benchmark in uh, word processing was Microsoft. So Google took what Microsoft had done, stripped it right back, created a nice, clean interface, much simpler and more intuitive UI. But when Dropbox launched Paper, exactly the same use case, exactly the same user base, they had to go so much further than this because in the meantime, Medium had launched and completely changed how we think about writing and publishing. What's the quality level that you're playing at? The next one in the toolkit is hooks, and these are an easy one to remember. I'm sure you're all very familiar already with thinking about hooks as ways to engage customers in your products. But do you really know what your quality hooks are? Last summer, we made a change to uh, our calendars. This is one of them, one of the old ones. Just one change. We removed this plastic cover. And we removed it partly because, uh, well, it's a bit shit, basically. It's really hard old plastic. It's non-recyclable. And we basically thought customers would be really pleased about this because we'd also noticed that it was a really useless feature. They basically just folded it over to the back and kind of hung it on the wall. So we took it away. And uh, when the change went live, we started to see some feedback that we, that we were really unhappy with. People seemed to be unhappy with the whole calendar, like not just the fact that we'd taken this plastic sheet away. So they were saying things like, um, the, paper's, the paper's thinner, or um, the printing isn't as good, I can't see the photos as well. And we're like, what? We haven't changed anything. All we've done is remove this plastic cover. And what became clear was that this plastic cover wasn't a quality feature in its own right, but it was a hook on which some of the quality of the calendar hung. So when we took it away, um, first of all, it made the calendar lighter. So when people picked it up, it felt flimsier to them. It just didn't feel like a solider product. And it had also been providing some stability, some additional stability in, in the packaging. So when we started shipping it without the cover, we got a little bit more damage uh, on, on the calendars themselves. But but the most important thing it had been doing, and I can't tell you, I can tell you that like no customer would articulate it like this, but it had been doing what we kind of refer to as respecting the photo. So let me explain. Our customers print photos of their loved ones, so their family, their friends, their dogs, um, and those photos are sacred to them. And that's why we don't sell anything like this, suitcases, tea towels, doormats, because 
bad things are going to happen to those faces. <laughs> so you have to respect the photo. And what we did when we took away this plastic cover was that we removed the barrier between the, the picture on the front of the calendar and the packaging. And our customers just didn't like the way it felt. It felt kind of icky to them. Very difficult for them to articulate that. So the other thing that you can do with hooks is you, if you can find the quality hooks, you can use them to really drive up the value of your, of your products. And I think the way ASOS did this when they launched in Australia was really clever. So ASOS took a look at the fast fashion market in Australia. And what they realized was that Australians weren't missing fashion. They were missing fast. So most of the local retailers had really long delivery schedules. So what ASOS did was they completely revamped their warehouse so that they could pick and pack all of the Australian orders first in the morning. They pre-printed all the shipping labels so that they could inject those parcels directly into the Australian postal system. And everything was like out, on flights, out of Heathrow by 11 o'clock to Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide, etc. And what that meant was that a UK retailer could get a parcel from the UK to a front door in Australia, any front door in Australia, in 48 hours, which was shorter than any other fashion rate retailer in Australia could do it. ASOS realized that they didn't need to diversify their products. They didn't need more dresses, more shoes. They didn't need to transform their UX. They just had to get their products to people faster. That was the hook on which they hung their quality. The final thing in the toolkit is a tiny little tin of farrow and ball paint. It's a tester kit tin. So it's almost completely unnecessary. It's really unexpected. And you definitely, uh, but it's just a little bit lovely. Everything we've been talking about so far has been about getting the basics right. So really not disappointing your customers. But if you want to really have a quality product, you need to go above and beyond that and really delight them. And the best way to do that is to include something that's just unexpected, unnecessary, but a little bit lovely. Increasingly, uh, in the digital world, I'm intrigued by how we can quite often achieve that, add that little bit of magic, by making things seem just a little bit more physical. This is how, this is what happens when you erase on a Jamboard, and if everyone's ever used one of these. But you get this slightly gorgeous, completely unnecessary trail of electronic chalk dust. And that's exactly the kind of little touches that I'm talking about. But, the best examples um, that I, I think the best examples of these are where customers take something that, or where products take something that should be kind of extraordinarily dull and potentially even a bit annoying and make it quite pleasurable. Has anyone come across Expensify? Anyone been using that? Yeah, I'm getting some nods. Um, this is something that does one of life's most dull tasks. It catalogs your expenses and receipts and allows you to process them. And like, how could you possibly make that a quality experience? But this is how they ask you if they can geotrack you. And this is how they ask you whether they can send you push notifications. What's so lovely about this is it's just the way like a human assistant would do it. You know, you can totally imagine someone asking you in this way whether they can make your life just that little bit easier rather than those typical iOS pop-ups that, that we get. So. When you're thinking about how to add quality, don't forget about adding those little farrow and ball touches to your products. Quality doesn't mean you don't have bugs. It means you've solved the right problem for the right customer in the best possible way. 
No, coming back to dear Cox and Cox, <laughs> what was it they did so wrong? Well, for a start, they're a company who are all about aesthetics. They completely forgot that they've worked really hard to attract customers who are all about aesthetics. The parts that, they, that I got were not the parts that they sold me, and they weren't right for what I wanted to do. How much of this should the product team have been caring about? I would argue all of it. They should have been driving and thinking about these types of problems, solving these types of problems for customers through their organization. And I think that if they'd really thought about it, they would have made some more fundamental changes to their website. They would have changed their landing pages to understand and their product pages to, to make it clearer how products were going to behave in life. I would obviously happily have lent them some of my photography to, to help achieve that. But I think they could also have gone further than that. You know, they could have put warning in the basket for products that behave in a way that customers might not expect and offered alternatives. And imagine if, after they had made those implementations, the product team had encouraged the CS team or whoever it was, the customer service team, whoever it was, to send an email to everyone who'd got in touch, just saying something along the lines of, hey, thanks for your feedback. We've really taken on board. These are the changes we've made. They didn't need, to, they could have given me my money back, but they didn't need to. They just had to convince me that they cared about quality and I would have tried them again. Because as the old saying goes, an unhappy customer, a happy customer will tell three people, an unhappy customer will tell 10 people, and a really, really annoyed one will make a whole presentation about it and talk about it at a conference. <laughs> Thank you so much.